know my wife uh, and some others are home sick today. That thing seems to be just going through everybody, but uh, in spite of those circumstances, I notice we finally have hot chocolate out in the coffee booth, so everything is finally right with the world again. Um, but uh, it's good to have you here this morning, and we're glad uh, that you've made the effort to be here. There's something unique about being the body of tri- church, being the body of Christ gathered, and really having opportunity just to encourage and worship one another, and in the world we live in, that's vitally important. I'm going to invite you to bow with me before we step into the text, and then we'll try to bathe our hearts and minds a little bit in uh, the truth of God's word this morning. Father, we come before you because you are worthy of our praise and our adoration and the devotion of our life. Paul reminds us in Romans 12 that we are to offer ourselves as living and holy sacrifices, not as an extreme or radical demonstration of our love for you, but as our reasonable worship based on your mercies that you have demonstrated to us. Father, I pray that we would choose to value that in our own hearts and mind, even though there's a lot of things around us that will attract our heart, that we would keep our eye fixed upon Christ and the realities of heaven, on the eternal things that need to shape uh, the choices and the uh, direction of our life and our heart. We ask that we would honor you in all things, that we would live by faith to know the mind of Christ, to allow the power of your spirit to transform our own hearts, And Father, that we would see the need to be a people who live on mission, Uh, that every single day becomes an opportunity to communicate the hope of the gospel to those that do not know you, and to encourage one another day after day, as long as it's called today, lest any of us be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And so we present ourselves before you as ones who desperately need to know your truth and your love and grace and mercy in our own hearts, that every day is a new journey to discover a relationship with you in fresh ways. We ask that we would continue even as we move through Thanksgiving and move towards the time of the year that we celebrate the entrance of Christ into our existence, uh, that you would continue to help us um, value and appreciate and treasure the things of God and the things that you have revealed to us. And for all this we pray and give you thanks in Christ's name, amen. Well, if you're visiting with us, we are in Mark chapter 9. We are going to start reading this morning from verse 14. And this is a remarkable story that we have in this journey after the transfiguration and the Jesus and his disciples come off the mountain and they are um, come back to the disciples. There was only three of the disciples that were with Jesus when they came off the mountain and they come off there off this magnificent transforming experience that ought to radically change the whole heartbeat and the mindset of the disciples. And yet when they get down, they're going to find that reality sets in. And as we read through this text, you'll see some of the complications that they have to deal with. Starting in verse 14, it says this, and when they, they, Jesus and the three disciples, came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them. And the scribes were arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, being Jesus, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth 
and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. Let me pause there for a minute. I find it fascinating that some of the disciples were with Jesus and they have this mountaintop experience where they see the glory of God and the glory of Christ in a unique way. Then they come down and now they're hit with real life. And uh, there's always a danger that when we have these magnificent experiences where we feel like God spoke to us, that it doesn't always fit well with the grind of everyday life and the suffering and the hardships that people go through. Starting in verse 19. And he, Jesus, answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, but help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that the crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing uh, him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a, a corpse, so that most of them said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted, it up, lifted him up and he arose. And when he entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast this thing out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Or if you happen to have a King James Version, it'll say by prayer and fasting. I was reading John Stumbo's uh, article dealing with the sovereignty of God and he was talking about some of the, what he called the pondering the imponderables. The things that kind of are fun things to look at but are kind of oxymorons in terms of our culture and our language. He said this, you tell a man there are 400 billion stars and he'll believe you, but tell him the bench was that uh, the bench has wet paint and he has to touch it. And he asked why? Why is that ground round stuff called hamburger when it's made out of beef? Why do you put suits in garment bags and put garments in suitcases? Why are there five syllables in the word monosyllabic? Something like that. You know, it's interesting to get caught up in some of these conundrums in life and some of the things that are hard to figure out. It's another to figure out the sovereignty of God. He goes on in his article to say this. At birth, the human brain weighs on an average about 14 ounces. It usually reaches its maximum size at age 15, which he then puts in brackets, proving that size of the brain has nothing to do with intelligence level. At its maximum size, the brain weighs an average of 46 ounces, slightly less than three pounds. In liquid measure, that's about a big gulp from the uh, soda machine at a local gas station. He says, there's no way for medical professionals to prove this, but the old theory was that we use only about 10% of our brain capacity. And we think with that, um, and we think that with our quarter pound cheeseburger type brain, that we're going to comprehend all the infinite things that God does. 
uh, as we try to decipher the mysteries of the millennia and answer the questions, it's logically impossible that we as finite creatures can figure out the mind of God. I have made the comment once in a while that sometimes no matter how long you've been a Christian, how much education you have, how many degrees are behind your name or how much money you have, that no matter how spiritually mature we think we are, God looks at us as three and four year olds running around with our chest puffed out thinking we know stuff and fighting over each other's toys. One of the things that we discover about this text that we're going in is that it's really at some point a bit of a conundrum. We see the power of God going to work in an unusual way, but we also see all the people around them struggling to know why things aren't working. And I I wanna step into this, and it's a mammoth text in terms of the amount of time we could spend in it, but I wanna suggest to you there are some things that force us to think about our own faith and how viable it is in the broken world that we live in. The first thing I want you to notice is the predicament, and there's really two things that happen here. There is uh, this man who's seeking help for his son. He has been afflicted by an evil spirit for many, many years, as the text would seem to indicate. When Jesus asks him how long has he struggled with this, he says since he's been a young child. And so he brings him to the disciples, and the disciples try to step forward in this ministry that God has given to them. And Jesus has given them the authority to do certain things and to represent him in the broken world and to spread the message of the gospel. And they try to cast this evil spirit out, but they can't do it. And so they're kind of puzzled by this whole issue is we thought we had the power to do this and they seem to be failing. They can't help this man who is absolutely desperate to help his son find any kind of healing from this evil spirit. The second predicament uh, may seem fairly incidental, but then the disciples start an argument with the scribes. Now, we're not told exactly what this, this conversation would be, but I suspect if the scribes are watching the disciples trying to cast out this spirit from the sea boy, and they're failing at it, that they, like typical good religious people, are going like, yeah, you guys talk about following Jesus and you can't even help this person. You're failing at it. You're supposed to be representing Jesus and have the power of God and you can't even help this young boy and this family find healing from an evil spirit. And the disciples in their pretty typical way would, I think, would push back. Well, Jesus already told us you guys are a bunch of narcissistic legalists, so your religion doesn't work any better than ours. I could see an argument starting here. I don't know about you, that's typically what happens in our culture is one group seems to do something and they think they've got it all figured out and another group comes along and says, hey, you guys, your, your religion's worthless. You can't do anything right. And they shoot back and saying, well, your own religion has got its hypocrisy in it. And, and off to the races we are. And so they, this is part of the story, but it would be really easy to blow over this to think it, well, here we go again. We're, we're trying to do ministry and we've got these legalists in here trying to point out what we're doing wrong. And so they're not only fighting the, the spirit world and the problem this family is struggling with, but now there's sort of ministry and religious fighting and going on at the same time. And Jesus comes down and he asks them, he goes like, what's the deal here? What are you guys arguing about? And again, they don't go into a lot of discussion But the the language of this is, you guys are fighting over certain opinions here. You're having this argument, you're trying to prove something right or wrong in either's camp. 
And it becomes so typical of religion and even denominationalisms where everybody's running around fighting about how they're doing it wrong and we're not like them and all these kinds of things. And, and so the, 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 the need of the boy seems to almost get lost in the fact that disciples are arguing with the scribes. And boy, isn't that typical religion? We want to be right. We want to prove other people wrong. We can find all the issues wrong with this particular group and what they're doing or what they're not doing because they're not doing it like us. And, and we're going to see this pop up in the following verses as well. So I suspect that this kind of fueled things a little bit. But boy, and, and in spite of all this argument and discussion, here's a man and a family who are struggling desperately for healing and some sense of hope. Something possible to give relief to his son. And these guys are having an argument It doesn't just happen in religion, it happens in families. You get couples who end up being divorced because they can't figure out how to get along and they keep proving each other right and wrong and complaining about what the other person's doing and there's kids that are floundering around in their midst because the parents are more concerned about being right than they are about caring for their own kids. You see this in friendships where one mistake one bad decision fractures a relationship forever because they have no idea how to forgive and reconcile. We live in a culture that is becoming increasingly more complaining and critical and condemning. We're so busy, people are so busy, and even Christians get caught in this, trying to define we're not like them and how they're wrong and everything else that they've lost sight of the needs of people that are standing right around them. And that's what the disciples and the Pharisees have just done and the scribes, they've, they've started this argument where regardless of what it is and here's a family that is desperate in need of help. And one of the things that we discover is that one of the impossible things that Jesus is gonna talk about later sort of fits this category too. Is that there's a lot of people who don't wanna have anything to do with church because it just looks impossible because all they hear is criticism and complaining. The people aren't finding hope because all that seems that's going on is people are jostling for position and proving other people wrong. But when you look at this particular situation, I want you to see the specifics of it. We read through it already, but I just want to draw it to your attention, is that the impossibility that this dad is facing is that he's got a son who's afflicted by an evil spirit and the most hopeless experience of any parent is I can't do a thing to help my kid. The boy is seized even from an early childhood. We're not told how this happened. We're not told that it was the parent's fault because they were into witchcraft or into something else. They aren't told it's the culture's fault. We're just told that this is the reality that he had to experience. And so this spirit every once in a while will tear into this son and he literally is throwing him into convulsions and the boy ends up foaming at the mouth and he gets, grinds his teeth and you can tell he's losing control and, he, and he, at times it looks like, as the father says, he throws him in the fire and, the, and it looks like the spirit's trying to destroy his son. And all he can do is restrain him. All he can do is try to cope with it because he has no answers. He has no way to fix and help his son. And for this dad, 
We're not introduced to anybody else in the family. This is not only an impossible situation, but it's unbearable. There's nothing more frustrating in life to have someone you care about and they're going through things and you can do absolutely nothing to help. It's impossible. And so his father is desperate. And so he has gone through this affliction for years. And I don't know about you, but sometimes we face pretty impossible situations. It might be a marriage falling apart. It might be a work environment that's unbearable. It might be friendships where you feel betrayed and they just won't reconcile. It might be a financial issue. It can be a lot of different things. You and I get overwhelmed from different things, but we all at times face situations that feel absolutely impossible and they feel overwhelming. I can't do anything to fix it. I can't do anything to help somebody. I can't get out of this situation at all. No matter what I try to do, nothing works. That's what this father's facing. And the question that inevitably would come to mind in terms of this discussion is why does God allow this kind of evil to exist? I mean, can't he see that this is especially for a young child, this is completely unfair. It would seem incomprehensible that this young boy had did anything to deserve this, and yet there's no solution. And when we live in a world that we do, it is filled with all kinds of pain and suffering and difficulties and hardships and evil things and afflictions and health issues. I suspect that if we brought this case to the medical field today, they would diagnose it as simply a mental illness. And that their solution would be to give them drugs to mitigate all the symptoms. Why? Because they don't know how to fix them either. (laughs) As fantastic as technology in the medical world is, there are lots of things that are impossible for them to fix. And so we live in a world that's broken and we live in a world that we face impossible situations that we would love to change but we can't. Even the Apostle Paul, when he was caught up into the third heaven and saw visions of God and revelations that were too utterly overwhelming for anyone to conceive of, he was given a thorn in the flesh and he begged God three times to remove it from his life and the best answer he got is, listen, my grace is sufficient for you. You've got to live with it. But the other dilemma here is that the disciples couldn't fix it either. I mean, for lack of a better term, that we would, they would have been his Christians. They would have been his followers, his disciples. And they were given authority to serve and do some incredible things. But they tried to cast out this evil spirit from this young boy and they couldn't do it. And so they were failing at the ministry as well. So they're kind of going like, wait a minute, why is this impossible for us to do? How is it that we can't utilize the power of Jesus in our ministry to help this boy? And so it raises the question, what happens when God's people fail at being able to help someone? Is that just their narcissism and their selfishness? Or what's missing? I mean, you and I would jump to passages that would say, well, we're supposed to do greater works than Jesus did, so what's, what's the deal here? Why, why can't we do this? Why are these men so limited in what they can do? 
It's not just about opportunity for us to improve our standard of life, like a work opportunity or whatever it happens to be. This is about finding relief from the pain and the suffering and the hardship and the debilitating circumstances that this family is facing. And we are often faced with situations where we're unable to do anything to change it. The other side of the coin for many of us is that we're unwilling to change it. I uh, read, a, I forgot to look at it this morning, there was a quote from an individual who uh, made this comment, he said, probably 80% of the population, even when they're faced with a change that would be very positive and beneficial for them, won't do anything to implement that change because they're just fearful of change. It doesn't really matter whether it's good for them or not, you'll get 80% of the population who won't do it for fear or anxiety or whatever, they just, even if the change is to their best interest. And so either we're faced with the problem of being unable to change or unwilling to change, this dad is more than willing to see things change. And so as they rumble through this process, he comes to Jesus and says, we need help. Because even your own followers can't help here. And then Jesus steps back and he says, well listen, if you're able, if you can, all things are possible for those who believe. Now, I don't know if you're one of the disciples sitting in the background, they're kind of going like, what? I mean, we, we believe you gave us the authority to do things like, okay, is there something wrong with me? Is there something wrong with our faith? And the statement that Jesus would say is, yeah, there actually is something wrong with your faith. If you are able, all things are possible to those, if I want to add a word, who truly believe. Can God change the heart of a person who is antagonistic? Well, our theology would say yes, our heart might betray us on that same point. Oh, I've tried and tried and tried. I've prayed for this person. I've prayed for this family member. I've prayed for my son or daughter. I've prayed for the healing for this particular. Nothing seems to happen. So it, it, all things might be possible, but not for me. And so it feels a little condemning when Jesus comes back and says, well, listen, if you're able to live up to this idea, all things are possible if you really believe. In Greek grammar, there are two different ways to look at uh, reality. One is the idea of something that's actual, so it's usually a statement of fact. I might say that you're all sitting here this morning and that's a statement of fact. I might say, hey, there's people watching on live stream, that may be a statement of fact. But the other side of there is the idea of possibilities. There's lots of things in our, even in our English language that talk about things that are potentially could happen. I wish that I would have spaghetti for lunch this, today. That may or may not happen, it's, it's possible, but knowing what we've got at home in the fridge, not likely and very probable that it's gonna happen. That's okay, I eat anything off the plate, whether it's leftovers, cooked food, I don't care if it's Chinese, Japanese, Filipino, Mexican, I'll just eat it, doesn't matter. 
But the idea is there's possibilities, and that's even different from the idea of probabilities. There are certain things that we say are more certain, so we'll say this is probably going to happen. The word used here is the idea of something is possibly can happen. So it's not a guarantee that it will, but it's possible if on the condition that you truly believe, all things are possible. It's a pretty amazing statement that Jesus makes. But what's, what makes everything possible? What makes anything possible? Well, the spiritually correct answer would be, well, Jesus is the right answer. Good theological right answer. Because Jesus is going to walk into this situation and he's going to do something that the man hasn't been able to do as for his family, that the disciples aren't able to do in terms of their ministry. Nobody's being able to do anything except Jesus and he makes the difference. But I bet you almost all of you could say, well, wait a minute, I thought I pleaded with Jesus. I tried to bring Jesus into the situation. I pleaded with him, I begged with Jesus. How could anything not be God's will if, if, to make somebody better? How is it not, against, not God's will that he fixes this, that he intervenes in this? And as they flounder through this, They struggle with the circumstances they're faced because it looks impossible and yet the only hope they have is Jesus. You know, I was thinking about this this morning as I was doing some more prep. As conservative evangelicals, we have this belief and faith in Jesus that I would, and and this is too much of a stereotype to, to make it for everybody, but we have what I would call a very receptive faith that's willing to accept what God's will is, even if it's not what we expect. And that's a good thing, because otherwise we can easily start dictating to God how he needs to operate and he needs to be like our concierge and that gets to be problematic. But we have developed often a very receptive faith to say, God, if it's your will, this will happen. If not, give me the grace and the strength to live through these circumstances, even though they're difficult or hard. That may be what the man was experiencing through the years with his son. There's other groups, you might label them charismatics or whatever, that are a little bit more proactive sometimes than us. They see a problem and they gather around and it's like, Jesus, on your authority, we're gonna, you're, you're going to heal these people. We declare your healing and we claim your promises. And of course, the difficulty with that is that We start telling God what to do rather than simply allowing his presence and power to change people. So you get both extremes. We're willing to simply accept things the way they are and there's no need to change or we get people who are basically telling God how he needs to change things and he better do it. In this particular text, Jesus comes back and says, okay, you've lived with this for a long time. I want to tell you that things could change All things are possible if you have faith. So for you and I, that might just rub a little bit harder, like, wow, then what what happens if it doesn't work, like the disciples? Does that mean our faith is weak, that it's insufficient? Well, the short answer might be yes. Let me remind you a couple things, which is, a nuance, not necessarily a theological distinction. I look at belief as our confidence in the credibility of the person of God or Christ. Because if you skip over that, 
then God simply becomes a concierge where here's your promises, we're going to claim them, and you have to live up to it and do what we tell you to do. So there's two aspects of it. One is I have to have belief in a person, and I have to have confidence that they're credible enough and they have the resources to do what they say, but then when they make a promise, that's where my faith kicks in, and I act based on what the promise is because I believe in who the person is. So there's belief in the person, there's confidence in the person, and then there's faith in the promise. So if I really believe in his credibility of who he is, then I can act by faith on the promises that he makes. So Jesus walks in and people flock around him because he's almost like a celebrity, and because of their confidence in who he is, the, uh, the man begs him, he says, if you're willing, have compassion and help us. And then Jesus shows what, this one little el- conditional element to it. Well, listen, Dad, if you're able, all things are possible if you just believe. Now, this is where it gets difficult for us. Because he comes back with probably the great confession of almost every person who claims to know Jesus. I believe, but help my unbelief. And he recognizes his own struggle in this process that he has a certain level of confidence in what Jesus has done because he's heard about Jesus. He wouldn't have brought him, his son to Jesus if he hadn't heard things about what Jesus could do, but he's just not sure he can do it for him. Boy, isn't that kind of our struggle? We all have a sense of belief in who God is and who Jesus is. We understand his credibility and we we believe in that, but then when it comes down to my life and my circumstances, it's like, I've been asking for a long time and nothing's happening. And we're terrified that we're the problem. Because we're the, the helpless dad who can't help his son or his daughter. We're, we're the disciples who are supposed to, this is the, sort of the nature of their ministry and they seem to be failing at it because something's wrong. Something's not working. And yet it's difficult because we look at the Father and we go, if there's anybody who ought to have a belief and a faith that even outstrips the disciples, it's got to be the dad because you won't find anybody more motivated in life than a parent trying to do something for their kid. They'll go to the ends of the earth, they'll try everything that they've even disagreed with in life just for the sake of the possibility of saving their kid. But what becomes apparent in this particular text is that desperation is not necessarily an expression of faith. Desperation is not necessarily an expression of faith. Because even he acknowledges, I believe, but help my unbelief. Because he knows by his own experience he is facing an impossible situation that he cannot solve. There's a story of a man who was talking to a scuba diver and he was talking about 
going down in depths that were so deep that everything was completely black. If you didn't have a light on your helmet, literally you couldn't see your hand right in front of you. And when there's that much darkness, there's a, always this sense of anxiety. You can't tell up from down. You can't tell if there's anything around you. You don't know if there's any threats around you. And you can't even tell which direction to go to get up to the surface. And he says there's always this little bit of being disoriented and sometimes this feeling of despair and desperation. And the guy says, well, like, how do you, how do you keep your head on straight if you're in a situation like that? And he says, well, there's only one thing I do. All I have to do is follow the bubbles. When I blow out the bubbles out of my tank, all I have to do is sort of feel which direction they're going, and I know that the bubbles will always get to the surface and to the light of day. And what Jesus comes in, in a sense, is he's saying, listen, with all this desperation, these impossible circumstances, and the, the darkness and the frustration and the disparity of all that's facing here between the disciples, the scribes, the father who can't help his son, is basically Jesus saying, listen, you just keep your eye on me because I'm the bubbles that will lead you back to life and to light. And so he, there's an aspect where the man claims, I believe, but the other side of the coin is, help my unbelief. And I don't care how old you are or how long you've been a Christian, how much education you have, how much money you have, how many ministry things you've done, how generous you've been to other Christians or whatever, there's always a sense of vulnerability as us as followers of Christ where we believe, but there's also this sense of, God, help my unbelief. I think to leave the second half off and say, I believe, can easily produce arrogance. Like if the rest of you knuckleheads could believe like I would, life would be a whole lot better. We'd get a lot more done. We'd see the gospel go out better. We'd see more things happen. But there's some people who struggle with, I believe, and they camp more in their life on their unbelief. And so they basically spiritually cripple themselves from believing that God can do anything because it's safer. I don't want to fail. I'm fear of letting God down. I'm afraid of of disappointing God because I don't have enough, enough faith. And the balance in this is that, hey, we believe, but realistically as finite human beings who are at times struggling through life and all the chaos and all the struggles and all the pain and all the suffering, there's an element that we have to be honest and go, help my unbelief. And so Jesus calls this man over with his son and he rebukes the unclean spirit and commands the spirit to come out of the boy and never return. That seemed like an odd little comment to me. Well, listen, if Jesus is gonna cast him out of this boy, like what stupid spirit would ever come back again? Like you're just asking to get thrown into the pit of hell or something. But we need to realize that sometimes the power of God works in our life and it cleans out the clutter and the difficult, the pain and brings healing, but nothing operates in a void. I was talking to a gentleman here over the last couple of weeks where he feels like he's done everything. He's confessed sin, he's forgiven people, he's worked through a lot of different things and everything else, 
And he just, he talked about rooting all this stuff out of his life. And I finally sort of asked him, it wasn't, this wasn't the exact verbiage, but it was kind of like, so what, what did you put in there in place of the stuff you cleaned out? And he kind of looked at me and so I said, well, one of the things we have to do is that God's word talks about our identity in Christ. If you clear all this stuff out and don't embrace the reality of who you are in Christ and the fullness of God dwelling in you, nothing operates in a void. So if you even sort of clean all this stuff out, it'll just backwash back into your life if you don't fill it with the presence of Christ. It's, it's like Philippians. You know the passage in Philippians 4 that says, uh, don't be anxious about anything, but make your prayers and supplications and all these things known to God and the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And what happens to many people is they get anxious about something, they get worried and desperate about something, so they bring all these requests to Jesus, and then they walk away and they go, I'm still like torn apart, I'm still anxious, I, because what follows in the following verses is, well, think on the things that are true and lovely and pure and honorable. And the point is, there's lots of people who claim the promise of God's peace but as soon as they're finished dumping all this on God, they turn back and they start worrying about the very, they focus on the very things they're worried about and start worrying about it again. You'll never experience the peace of God in your life if all you're trying to do is clean out the clutter and you don't replace it with something more powerful than the clutter that was there. And that becomes the reality of the presence and the power of God's presence and his grace and his peace because all we want to do is clear it out, we don't necessarily want to embrace the reality of what Christ can do. And so Jesus rebukes this unclean spirit and he casts him out and tells him never to come back again. And the disciples are kind of sitting around going like, okay, do we just like go and hide or do we ask him or what do we do? And so they go into the house and they go, Jesus like, can we ask you a question? How come we couldn't pull this off? I mean, we really tried. We really did. We claimed your name. We asked you to, in, in Jesus' name, to cast out this. We couldn't do it. Like, what's wrong? And then in the text, it says, this kind does not come out with anything but prayer, or if you have other versions and variant readings, this doesn't come out with without prayer and fasting. And you know, as much as the disciples have been with Jesus, they still have something to learn about their faith. In fact, I'm pretty convinced that no matter how much we think we know and how, how magnificent our faith is, God is always gonna put us in a situation where we have to learn more about our faith. Because he knows us as human beings well enough that the moment that we think we've got it figured out, we develop a, con a God complex and think that we've got it figured out. Some people might say, well, why, if God is really loving and caring, would he allow this kind of evil to inflict a young boy at a young age and, and we have to deal with all this evil and suffering? I kind of remember, well, if, uh, if I remember the narrative correctly, is that God created a perfect environment of paradise put two human beings into it and said listen I'm going to give you the freedom to love me with all of your heart soul and mind 
But you have the freedom to choose that. And they decided that they could do it better without God. So the, peop- the reason why all this pain and suffering and affliction and evil lives in the world is because two human beings disobeyed God and sucked sin and death and suffering and pain and mal- maladies and all these kinds of things into the world through the spiritual virus they injected into humanity and creation. And God is not only doing something about it, he did something about it by sending his son to die on a cross so that out of his great love, he would sacrifice what is most precious to himself in order to respond to our deepest need. And our deepest need, believe it or not, isn't about fixing our self-image or our sense of significance. It's not even about our security. It's about our sin. And lots of people want to follow Jesus to just simply regain their self-worth or to gain significance in life. They don't realize that the core issue is our sin and our separation from him. Then he can help us with our self-image. Cindy Riches talks about an individual, friend Debbie, who is dying of leukemia. She was in the cancer center at Seattle and she had slipped into a coma and her two adult children had flown in to say their goodbyes. She had asked a friend to drive with her to Seattle and she went to visit her friend and started praying for her. And the language that she uses is this. I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. And she is reminding herself what Jesus said. He will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father and I will do whatever you ask in my name so the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. And her question is, is he really gonna do that? She believed, but she needed help with her unbelief on it. When she got to the hospital, she prayed this prayer. Lord, I come to you based on the authority and power you've given me because of Jesus. Jesus, you said that we would do even greater things because of the power in us. You told us in John 15 that if I abide in you and your words abide in me, I can ask whatever I want and you will grant it to me. So right now in the name of and authority of Jesus, I rebuke the cancer and death. In Jesus' name, I pronounce healing and abundant life. As the story goes, a couple weeks later, her friend, Debbie, woke up, told the doctors that she didn't need any more of the IVs and things, and the doctors checked her and she was free of any kind of cancer. So she called her friend, asked her to come and visit her, so she went and sat down in the room And she was as vibrant and bright and alive as anyone could be. They shared the gospel with her family. And a result of her healing, her son and wife received Christ. It changed everything for them. I don't know where you're at this morning. Some of us may be 
way more on the help my unbelief because I have tried so often to fix this relationship and to help this person and to move alongside my son or daughter and I'm just losing hope because I don't think anything's possible anymore. And maybe we spent so much time camping on help my unbelief that we've lost sight of what we do believe in. Jesus put it back on the Father to say, listen, all things are possible if you will only believe. I know that we're going to struggle with the whole issue of what is this promise and what does he guarantee and what can I expect and demand and whatever it is, but if you're sitting here this morning, maybe your cry is, Lord, my unbelief seems to be more powerful than my belief. I believe, but help my unbelief. I've lost hope in my marriage. I've lost hope in this friend of mine who's rejected the gospel time and again. And sometimes the issue is not so much the circumstances we live in, but the focus of our life. And we need to come back to the reality that maybe we believe, but like the disciples, we have a lot to learn in terms of our unbelief and what it really means to trust Jesus. I think if Jesus was literally standing here this morning, he could possibly say something like, listen, don't lose hope. Don't give up. Because all things are possible. They may not seem probable, they may not seem certain to you, but all things are possible if you'll just keep your eyes fixed on me and believe in who I am. Don't, don't jump over the belief in the person to simply claim the promises because then he simply becomes your concierge trying to fix my life rather than a living savior whom we kneel before and worship and trust intuitively that whatever he chooses to do, all things are possible for those who truly believe. Does that answer all your questions? not supposed to but I want to leave you with the idea can you grapple with what your belief is and being genuine enough to ask Jesus to help with your unbelief and are you willing to walk with that back into the impossible situations because Jesus is teaching us that all things are possible for those who believe